The American dream is just that. Just a dream. War is a continuation of politics. Only by other means. Politics is a continuation of economics by other means. This is our bank. This is our war. And this is our plan of attack. Banks have become an essential threat to our democracy. So consider this justice. Thank you for listening to Revolution Radio, freedomslips.com, the number one listener-supported radio station on the Internet. Please help support this station so this battle can continue forward. Revolution Radio! The opinions expressed on this radio station, its programs, and its website by the hosts, guests, and call-in listeners or chatters are solely the opinions of the original source who expressed them. They do not necessarily represent the opinions of Revolution Radio and FreedomSlips.com, its staff, or affiliates. You're listening to Revolution Radio, FreedomSlips.com, 100% listener-supported radio, and now we return you to your host... Sacred Matrix, a divine paradigm of love and universal consciousness, with your host, Janet Kira Lesson and Dr. Sasha Lesson. Together we transform the world. And now, here are your hosts, Janet Kira and Dr. Sasha Lesson. Hello everyone and welcome to the Sacred Matrix on Revolution Radio at revolution.radio. Hello, hold on one moment, Andrew, while I do the intro. And uh, I'm your host, Janet Lesson, and I'm here today with my uh, beloved co-host, Dr. Sasha Alex Lesson. Our producer is Thomas Becker and our very special guest today is Andrew D. Bishago. And we are going to talk about Andy's involvement in the secret government's time travel and teleportation program and the evidence that he uh, gathered over all this time to corroborate his um, time travel. So, Dr. Lesson, what would you like to say before we bring on Andrew? Uh, Hello? Are you off of mute? There you go. Yes. I'm off of mute, Janet. Hello? Yes. Go ahead. Speak into the mic as close as possible. Okay. Having trouble hearing you. Are you talking? Yes. Okay. I'll try plugging in the... No, it's okay. It's just not coming in very well. Um, probably we'll have to come in here, I guess, and we'll go off of it. Um, okay, so come on in here then, because that's not working very, very well. And just uh, talk here. Okay. 
Hold on one second. We're going to talk over here. Okay, go ahead and speak. Okay, well, we, what, 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 in the course of doing his own research, uh, Andy has discovered some really important things about research and about evidence and about how we structure our, you know, we're so limited in uh, uh, what is evidence uh, and we count things that are based on uh mistakes as though they're truths because they happen to be part of the popular uh, notion. And uh, Andy has, has got to uh, be, by his own research, which is fascinating in and of itself, something that is really critical to our entire system of, of justice. And so it's, we've got some questions here. Um, okay, one second. I want to just ask him as we're going through, but... Yeah, um, I, I can't, I'm so far, but... Yeah. Just, just, Okay, anyway, Andrew, we're going to ask you questions during the course of the, this show. I wanted to see first if we can be heard. Uh, Ahmed, Thomas, can you hear us? I, I can hear you, Janet. I, I, I can hear you, Janet. Y'all okay. are fine except, are fine except uh, uh, Sasha's uh, computer there. Sasha's computer. And now I can hear myself. Now I can hear myself. Okay, I'm going to make sure that turned off you keep talking okay start let's, talking to Andy. okay so when you research and that's one word yeah. okay uh, can you hear me janet's gonna leave the room and soon we'll be able to converse <laughs> okay so andy when you when you research the evidence that corroborates your time travel particularly back to lincoln's gettysburg and the ford theater you uncovered principles of data evaluation that are critical to our ability to deal with observational, recorded, and applied evidence free of the matrix of denial built into the current narrative. In other words, just because it's a, a common way of looking at things doesn't mean that it's right. That's one of the incredible things that you found out. And so we're going to uh, start by looking at uh, what you remembered, uh, how you dealt with witnesses uh and, and and all kinds of things like that so uh, so let's hear what you had to deal with first of all from your memories of of things then from what it's like uh, when you were a child remembering and what it's like as an adult person reflecting on the child's experiences because that's a very fascinating uh thing that we want to see and then how right. all these different things the photographs and things all fit together into make a larger uh, undeniably uh, integrated system that does not uh, uh, fragment. It's all supportive, and it could not be by chance. That's what I got out of uh, our discussion. Right. Anyway. Well, uh, right. Josh, that's that's a nice summary. I'm, I'm getting a, an echo of, of of my my words here, but um, that's a nice summary of of where the evidence takes us. Um. The overarching thing I learned researching my time travel experiences is that it's the rememberer who is the exceptional witness. Our system of justice, our system of academic social science research, the biases by which we govern our group experience actually tends to disparage the rememberer. So, for example, in the criminal law, when you have wildly discrepant accounts of something that's happened, let's say an allegation of criminal wrongdoing where one person asserts that they were 
being vic- they remember being victimized or abused, and the other sibling or peer from their childhood states that couldn't have happened. What, what I what I found in my research, in the, my experiences, is that it's the exceptional person who remembers anything, and we should weight our evidence towards elevating the rememberer, not holding the rememberer to the common standard, which is basically one of such widespread forgetfulness that it's almost like a trance state. So for example, I remembered that a year after I left Project Pegasus in 1972, we moved in November of 72 to Southern California. I briefly attended elementary school again. I went back into the sixth grade in Southern California. And then I matriculated to Lawrence Junior High School in Chatsworth, California. And I know that I presented, we had to do a five-minute talk for Mrs. Mark's honors English class. That was fall of 1973. I remember the people in the class. Well, there were maybe 30 kids in the class. I, I can remember at least 15 of their names and faces. I remember presenting a five-minute talk about my teleportation experiences. I remember the fact that a particular girl named Sandra, I have her last name. I don't want to provide it here, but I know her last name, her maiden name, that she came up and stated something to me that I recalled after I spoke, that one of my friends grabbed his hair and leaned forward in his desk as if pulling his hair out over what I was alleging that I had been teleporting back and forth across the country. So I'm a rememberer, okay? I, I remembered presenting this talk. I remembered who was in the room. I remembered the name of the teacher, whose class it was, and when it was. And I was able to find four of those 15 or 20 kids who I had the identity of. They were a businesswoman, a labor lawyer, a geology professor at a major university, a tenured faculty at a major university, and a very successful comedy writer as adults. So I was able to find two of them were friends, two were not. But because of the Internet, I was able to find four of them and question them. Do you remember that I presented about my teleportation experiences? in our seventh grade honors English class. And they did not remember. And quite frankly, I wouldn't have remembered. I, I, and I don't remember what they presented on. I remember what the comedy writer did, which was he did kind of a, a comedy spot. He did a kind of a comedy gag. But um, I was able to recover the fact that my claims of having been time traveling and teleporting were not or are not of recent fabrication because I had been discussing them. I had discussed them in public a year after they happened 44 years ago. And, and yet in the area of criminal wrongdoing in the area of paranormal experience, we tend to prejudice the case against the rememberer when in fact, I think we should elevate the rememberer and recognize for that for the most part most people don't remember anything it's really frightening and in a sense what i learned is that our group experience itself 
is challenged by the widespread forgetfulness of the general population. It's alarming. Uh, so how many people let me forget. see if I get it. The, the courts are prejudiced against the uh, witness that seems to, to be too far out, uh, and uh, they take the more conventional, uh, less uh, criminal uh, ver uh, version of things rather than the more criminal version. I'm saying that 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 memory has should have a higher standing that it has in our system we, we tend to we, t we tend to construct the evaluation of evidence in a way that puts downward pressure on memory and upward uh -huh. pressure on consensus when in fact i believe that con consensus can often not be achieved not because something didn't happen but because most people are exceedingly poor rememberers so for example let's say you have an allegation of uh, children being victims of abuse or of witnessing a felony. The whole false memory foundation spinning of claims of government mind control, claims of sexual abuse in childhood, claims of people witnessing felonies, of neighbors and so forth, tends to discredit the rememberer when in fact I think that it's the rare person who remembers anything, and so we should elevate memory and say, well, you know, if this person remembers this, let's really respect that fact and, go, and take our analysis from that point and move forward. Let's not be so brutally dismissive of those, for mm -hmm. example, who offer claims of the paranormal experience, because in fact, when you have a non-ordinary experience, a singular experience, we remember everything in terms of it being stored in the engrams, the engrams in our brains, but we, we learn very little. And one of the th things that's most difficult to learn is a singular experience. So in those cases, let's say, where there are two women who were peers in childhood, and one of them says, you know, I saw Mr. Anderson across the street kill a child. Generally speaking, there's a propensity in society to treat the rememberer as if there's an a priori assumption of either false memory or of delusion, when in fact, I'm saying that since so much is forgotten, I think the onus should be on society to discount the rememberer rather than the other way around. That's the issue that we were touching on. Um, you make a lot of sense. I, in, in psychology, Andy, a guy named Ash did these experiments, some of which had uh, people in the room, stooges, that were saying a line was different in, in comparison to another one. And some of the people not only went along socially for what they thought was appropriate, but their actual perception was changed by their perception of what the common uh, norm was. You know, I, I had... Okay, well, I, I won't give names here, but the comedy writer remained a friend of mine from the seventh grade through high school, college, and post-college. And when I came forward on Coast to Coast AM, originally on, in November of 2009, with the first national account of my time travel claims, his response was, well, you know, I've known you for 40 years and you didn't talk about this. So his gestalt, his, his attempt to frame a whole view of reality, right? in the terminology, what, of Jungian psychology, is one right. in which my claims seemed of recent fabrication. And hence, why wouldn't I have told him that I had time traveled in, during the course of a 40-year friendship? But in fact, a year after I stopped teleporting across the country 
I presented an account to our honors English class at our junior high school, and I remember how he responded in the classroom. So that's, that's another object lesson in what I'm talking about. I'm mm-hmm. sure that that friend who remains a friend. I mean, we didn't, we didn't uh, break off our friendship as a result of him having a propensity to not believe me. But his position was, well, in 40 years ago, you would have talked about it. In 40 years, you would have talked about this. The fact is, I did. He was in the room. I spoke publicly about my experiences 44 years ago in a class where I know exactly where he was sitting in the room. And that's kind of the phenomenon I'm talking about. People frame their gestalt of reality based on an a priori assumption that if they don't remember something or evidence seemingly hasn't been provided, that they must be right. When in fact, because the prevailing standard is really one in which almost nobody is a rememberer at all, is what I found in my research, yeah. that his, 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 his approach to my information should have been, well, I've known Andy for over 40 years. We became friends in the seventh grade. I don't remember him talking about this, but maybe he didn't want to. Maybe he was uncomfortable talking about it. Maybe it was a repressed experience. Maybe he tried to talk about it and it was laughed off. The reality is I had talked about it in a formal way to a class in which he was in attendance. And I could go to that classroom and today and with him and say, you sat right here. I presented from this side of the room and you were sitting right there. And when I talked about time traveling, you were acting like it was driving you crazy and you were pulling on your hair and doing all these sight gags as, you know, the future comedian that, that you became. So, so that, that's a more clear picture of reality is one in which an old friend of mine could say, you know, I tend not to believe what Andy's saying now because he never talked about it. But in fact, I did talk about it. I talked mm-hmm. about it in public. I talked about it in, an, in, a, in a talk that I had to give one of our classes. And I gave that talk. And there was very little response. But I was able to, I was able to find him, because he's a friend, and I was able to find the girl Sandra. Actually, Sandra came, she was sitting at the back of the row that I was sitting in the front of that row. And she came forward and she walked past my desk and said, oh, secret agent man, huh? Time traveling for the government and then walked back to her seat. So I remembered, you know, what she had said in response to my talk. Now, Mm -hmm. her answer was more interesting. She said, you know, I do remember that you got up and talked about something very unusual. And that sounds like something I would have done. Uh, But I don't remember specifically that it involved teleportation and, and time travel, but I do remember that it kind of shocked the class and the teacher kind of uncomfortably went on to the next kid. I, of course, was alphabetically at the top of the list. I was frequently presenting uh, first mm-hmm. in class or second because my initials are A, B. So, and I also like to go first just to get stuff done. I, did, I, did, I don't. I, to, to this day, I don't like waiting before going mm-hmm. on publicly. So I would often just volunteer to go first in school. But I remember that I went first and that the teacher's response was sort of a shocked non-response. No questions were asked <laughs> by any of the kids, by the teacher, and they, she quickly went on to the next kid. 
okay, he might maybe talked about, you know, going to Yosemite that summer or something. I don't know. But I'm, I'm just saying that um, we frame our view of reality based on an a priori assumption that we have good memories and that we would have remembered if somebody had ever mentioned something. But in fact, the, the prevailing standard is one in which most people remember almost nothing of any value. I mean, we have institutions, high schools, colleges, universities, graduate schools, to promote learning. Learning is just memories that you can tap. You know, we remember everything as, as a matter of the storage of that information in our engrams. It's learning that allows us to create the channel pathways to reach those engrams and access mm-hmm. that experience. But Penfield, uh, Walter Penfield, the Canadian mm-hmm. uh, physician, found that if he stimulated portions of the brain with an electrode, the person experienced the original experience at, down to the mm-hmm. aroma of you know, walking past somebody's kitchen window and smelling the aroma of what they were cooking in their kitchen. In other words, the whole experience came back. Mm-hmm. So everything's mm-hmm. up there, but l- there's very little learning going on. And I think that should actually inform our understanding of the law of evidence in courts of law. It should inform our investigation of the paranormal, and it should inform our understanding of what reality is. Because the bottom line is some of the people with the most unusual stories are just the good rememberers. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's the bottom, the, bot, the bottom line is that if somebody is remembering something, since we know that all experienced phenomena in the brain have to have a stimulus, that in and of itself should have standing. Not that the, there should be an a priori assumption that the person should be believed, but there should be an a priori assumption that the person not be discounted. I call that mm. objectified open-mindedness. Uh. That we, we should make open-mindedness a, an intentional practice because the common standard is so low. Most people don't learn very much. You can literally hold a meeting and isolate a social interaction with somebody and give them extremely specific information and one, two, five, 10, 15, 20, 25, 50 years later, they're not going to remember it. That's, that's what I learned in my, my research because I have a superb memory and I was able to go, I went all the way back to kindergarten and I found people I had gone to kindergarten with. I brought that all the way forward. To into law school and graduate school. And I realized we have an understanding of what, what normal is, of, of the things that are believable as to what's happened, as to what's happened to our common culture. But there's very little learning going on. And so, in fact, um, there's, I, mean, I think there's strong support for what Daniel Goleman, the Harvard psychologist, you know, called the social trance. It's almost as if yeah. the common social standard is one of trance rather than of sapience. Most people <laughs> are not aware most of the time. Yeah. I can think of a recent example. Yeah. No, n- nobody is, is noticing that kids are not growing up the way we grew up. We grew up in the United States at a time when there were still 
fields and woodlands near our homes. Even kids in cities sometimes had open fields near where they lived. Um, and abandoned fields, for example. So children today are growing up in no contact with nature. They've never gone into the woods and picked up a turtle or found a frog hopping across the grass or seen a rabbit running across the grass. And nobody's commenting on the fact that they're growing up neurotic compared to the previous standard of what childhood was, where kids spent most of their time outdoors. Kids are spent now spending most of their time indoors on their digital devices, communicating with video games and each other, completely isolated from nature. I look back and I, I, I asked myself, I actually went on to the internet and I found that I rode my bike 3.6 miles to that junior high school. Today, kids are driven, they're chauffeured from their homes to their junior high schools, if the junior high school is two blocks away. I was biking 7.2 miles a day, five days a week, to attend that junior high school. I was sometimes walking that distance when I didn't take my bike. How many kids today are walking 3.6 miles to school? <laughs> <laughs> I'm just saying, but 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 I use it as a, you know again as an object lesson to say, well, in a sense, we've forgotten what childhood was, what childhood included, the improvisational dimension of childhood. I remember my dad saying that during the depression they would take the they would take the wooden frame off of a Model A Ford and cut it down the middle, and that produced two hockey sticks. They would oh then gosh. polish, you know. They, they, yeah, yeah. They would then put some tape around, around the end of the of the stick, and that was that was their hockey stick. So, where is the improvisational dimension of childhood? I remember improvising toys like that. There's no improvisation. There's no problem solving. There's no really. There's not very much exercise. Many of the kids are leaving high school obese. But they're also being cut off from sort of an authentic experience of reality for an artificial one that's been programmed into video yeah. games and into the digital uh, infrastructure that they're being raised in. But I, I think that that's, that's going on completely unexamined because for the most part, their parents have forgotten what their childhood included. That's what my investigation into my non-ordinary experiences in childhood showed me is that there were specific things that happened that nobody in a particular peer group remembered except for myself. Or there was a retelling that transposed who did what, who said what, etc. That was very common. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So, so that's, that's what we were talking about when, when you raised this point is that, um, uh, we have put the, the onus on the rememberer when, in fact, we should recognize that if somebody's remembering something, if they've learned it, that's significant. That should have a higher standing than it does in the law of evidence and in our own presumptions about what normal is or what, what the world includes. How do you make that happen uh, in a, a social way? You have to bring a lawsuit or what do you 
you do to make that a, a, a judicial a judicial point? I don't know. I don't know. I, I certainly I certainly can say that in the criminal law context where when there have been allegations of witnessing felonies years before, there has been a whole industry that sprung up suggesting that that's the fruit of, 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 uh, false memory. Mm-hmm. I, I think that that was bogus. I think that missed, missed the boat that missed the problem. I think that after I've done my investigation into all going all the way back to childhood regarding my non-ordinary experiences, I'm left with the belief that I think most of the time people suddenly come into the possession of traumatic memory. They're describing things that have actually really happened. In other words, I think the bias should be on behalf of the remember rather than against them. That's, that's what I was left with as a lawyer who practices criminal law. Sometimes I don't exclusively practice criminal law, but I do practice criminal law. I'm left with the strong presumption that the the person who remembers um, witnessing something unusual or something criminal, something mm-hmm. felonious, years years before, is is usually able to provide that that information because they are a rememberer. There's somebody who learned from their experience, whereas most people who even would have been original witnesses have lost the memory of um, singular experiences. Wow. Uh, you know, I can tell you as, as a psychotherapist, once you allow a person's a dominant uh, social personalities to stand aside and, and listen to their inner child in uh, therapy, the child remembers why he or she developed the defensive uh, 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 forgetting uh, that it's not accidental, but it's a uh, protection of the individual's integrity when they're a child, often. Right, and 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 trauma actually tends to promote learning in some individuals. Yeah. That's sort of a corollary to this. So that where yeah. the presumption would be, well, the the teller of the tale is deluded. They're mentally ill. They're bipolar. There's all this name calling against the rememberers. I think that that has to shift. We have to say, wait a minute, since most people are not remembering, the fact that the person has anything to share from so many years ago is could could in and of itself be significant. Mm-hmm. Not necessarily always true, but certainly not to be as easily derided as it is. Wow. Thank you. This is really great yeah. stuff, Andy. Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, it goes way beyond your stuff. It applies to everybody, to our whole system. Yeah. Right, right. So now we've we've started the the broadcast with where we were gonna gonna end it. So maybe I can work backwards. And we we were talking about the fact that um, uh, I'm I'm going to be giving a talk at at Stargate to the Cosmos in Albuquerque, yeah. New Mexico, which you and Janet are organizing. Um, for late October of this year called Proving Project Pegasus. There are still individuals who claim that I haven't proved my experiences. Well, he's made all these claims, but he hasn't proved them. That is not true, and that's part of the social trance we're living in. 
I have performed a 10-year proof of my experiences, complete with providing information in the public domain in real time that could not have been fabricated that has later proved to be true. So I thought during this show we would go into some of those data points. Cool. With, with your permission. Yes, um, please do. I'm sorry if I jumped the gun and got to the conclusion, but it was that was the part <laughs> that excited me. Right, right. It, 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 it's kind of maybe good to underscore that, that that's where it all leads is to the fact that, you know, my, I've, I've been investigating my experiences since around the year 2000, so for almost 20 years. And I, I, at this point, the kind of blanket incredulity that claims as far out as mine get, at this, at this point, I think is entirely specious. Mm-hmm. It's entirely specious because there is no standard of group group memory. Um, mm-hmm. So I think that when that person, you know, when a particular person shares an unusual memory, a claim of wrongdoing, a claim of some kind of injustice having been waged, a claim of paranormal experience, wherever it has any gravity, certainly personal gravity for the for the claimant, my bias now is to to really not necessarily believe the person ab initio, you know, but, but at least listen, because mm-hmm. I think that that gravity has its own significance. So, so what did I do to prove my time travel claims? Well, the first thing I did is I went to the project principals. I had conversations with my father, who was a project principal. He was the, he was the chief technical consultant between Parsons and the CIA on teleportation having repeated Tesla's teleportation experiments at the Edison labs in the 1950s and 60s. I went to Courtney Hunt of the CIA, who was time traveling in Project Pegasus. Uh, I called Dr. Harold Agnew in 2000, and he said, well, no, you're mixed up. I said, what do you mean? He goes, you're mixed up with the facts. And I said, how so? And he said, the teleportation project wasn't at LANL namely the Los Alamos National Laboratories. It was at one of the other labs in New Mexico. So keep on digging. Now, in 10 years from that statement, the year 2000, by 2010, Dr. Agnew was telling Ralph Steiner, the science reporter for National Public Radio, that I was telling tall tales. Because by then he realized I was making a case. I was was actively investigating a classified project that I had been on that he had led. And so suddenly uh-huh. he was back, you know, over 10 years, he began backtracking and even denying that he had admitted to me that there was a project. Um, I called, so, 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 so that, that, that well, and, and let me actually, actually describe what happened with that information. So I called Agnew in 2000. He admitted that there was a teleportation project. Ten years later, he had migrated into a defensive position where he was telling Ralph Steiner, the science reporter for National Public Radio, that I was telling tall tales. Well, Ralph chose to believe Dr. Agnew. And that's a, that's a volitional decision that he made and that a lot of people who work professionally in media make. They choose to believe and adhere to officialdom and repress and deny the independent claimant when in fact our country was founded in the spirit of independence and of individual responsibility. 
So that's what you know, happened. Uh, Andy, if, if, uh, could it also be that they uh, they know that their job is on the line, and if they're sympathetic with something too far out, they're uh, going to harm their careers? There is that too, you know. Well, while Ralph, at least originally, was talking about doing a, a piece about my experiences for NPR, oh. and he spent about 100 hours on the phone with me, and wow. then he was later targeted, and he assumed that it was because of interactions he had with astronaut Edgar Mitchell, but I'm also an American astronaut and chrononaut, and certainly anything I shared with Ralph was as controversial as what astronaut Edgar Mitchell shared with him. But again, he believes that Mitchell and I are different in kind when in fact Mitchell was only somebody identified as an American astronaut by NASA. I was an American chrononaut and astronaut in my Mars experiences, but not officially identified. So even mm -hmm. Ralph's understanding of what happened to him in terms of later targeting for the investigative reporting he was trying to do about some of these unconventional time, space, and space-related subjects was colored by an adherence to officialdom. He believed yeah. that he had been targeted because of his interactions with quote-unquote astronaut Edgar Mitchell rather than quote-unquoted astronaut Andrew D. Bishago. You see, again, there, yeah. there are a set uh -huh. of there are a set of social understandings in place that don't cohere with reality. That that's what I discovered. Right. And there's, there's yeah. no, so, 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 so everything that, everything that Agnew admitted ended up being, he ended up migrating into a much safer position 10 years later when I had, you know, the science reporter for NPR interested in my claims because they're true. And I wanted to see them reported on NPR, but he chose to believe Agnew's accusation against me that I was telling tall tales rather than accept my evidence rather than for, rather than attribute any credibility to me as an individual despite my reputation for truthfulness the fact that I've been practicing law for over 20 years and never accused of falsehood or deception the fact that I had to be psychiatrically evaluated by numerous state bar organizations to sit for state bar exams, et cetera. In other words, it doesn't matter what you bring as an individual when media always insists in reifying officialdom. And that's what happened in the one-off um, interaction I had with the science reporter for NPR. He chose to believe a libel against me by Agnew that was defensive and that was based on Agnew going back 10 years and trying to conceal what he had revealed to me rather than just take my data and Agnew's and compare it. Um, I, I also uh, reached out to Joseph Connison, who was one of my dad's colleagues at Parsons. And when I told, when we talked about the teleportation devices, the chronovisors that were part of the technical infrastructure of the U.S. time-space arsenal that was developing during those years. And uh, Joe Coniston asked me uh, what I was going to do with the information. I said I was going to write a book and try to get it made into a movie. And this is a direct quote from a retired Parsons engineer. He said, a book, a movie, nobody on the outside knows about that stuff. Ooh. 
So here we had one of my dad's colleagues at Parsons acknowledging the cover-up. I also found, in addition to Project Principles, I found independent witnesses with technical insight who witnessed some of the time travel devices. So, for example, I developed the testimony of Captain Lewis Wary, who was a professional engineer who was directing the construction of a cooling system for one of our classes of nuclear submarines at Curtis Wright in the 1970s. He was directing 1,500 people. And he, he described, Captain Wary described how he went past a room in Curtis Wright during those years and saw what must have been the teleportation device and asked what it was, and he didn't get an answer. And then the next time he walked through that building and looked into the same room, it wasn't there. So here I had somebody with technical insight, somebody with who was essentially a professional engineer in New Jersey and California, who was knowledgeable enough to be directing the construction of a major component of one of our nuclear submarine classes who had seen the teleporter and could testify to having seen it. So initially I reached out to the mid-career professionals who were now elderly, who had been the project principals, and I developed witnesses. Now look, if you can develop witnesses to a criminal act being committed, those people can testify in any courtroom in this country because such testimony is considered direct evidence. Yeah. When witnesses testify as to what they did or what they saw, it's not hearsay. It's direct evidence. It's not mm -hmm. even covered by the rule against hearsay and its exceptions. Okay, so mm -hmm. so when when people glibly say, well, Andy's got interesting stories, you know, it's fascinating to listen, but I don't believe him because he, he hasn't proved any of his claims. Wait a minute. I recovered valuable information from project principles and also eyewitnesses to the technology. So that was the first class of evidence that uh -huh. we talked about um, to verify my experiences. The second was, it's not generally known that I developed testimony from other teleportees. Among those who came forward to verify that he himself had teleported and that he had been training me at a time when I was time traveling for DARPA was the late William Paris, who used the metaphysical name William White Crow. Bill Paris was my, was my martial arts instructor in my fifth grade year, which was 1971-72. On April 29th of 2016, on Andy 2016, which was my U.S. presidential group on Facebook, it was my Facebook group in support of my independent presidential campaign in 2016. William White Crow stated that he was my martial arts instructor when I was quote unquote time traveling for DARPA, that we later crossed paths in a place called Mars, and he endorsed me for president. Now this was from a career army officer who had everything to lose by coming forward. He did lose everything. White Crow was assassinated on February 16th of 2018. About a year and a half after endorsing me for president, 
and shortly after coming forward corroborating my time travel account and my Mars visitation account and appearing as a speaker at the fifth and sixth annual conferences, national conferences of the Mars Anomaly Research Society, the research society that I founded to bring forward the truth about Mars. The fact that it's inhabited, it was inhabited in antiquity, it's inhabited today, and that American astronauts have been there since 1964. Okay, so... Uh, what makes you think he was assassinated? Well, because his death had to result from accident, suicide, or assassination, and I'd, I'd rather not go into an elaborate analysis okay. of the circumstances okay. surrounding his untimely passing on February 16th, but I think all things being equal, they, they point to a probable assassination. Wow. Um, among among those three three possibilities. I, I think his cause of death was cited as apparent suicide by the coroner, but... Um, I think there's certainly a, a colorable claim that it was an assassination rather than a suicide. So as I a direct white result as, of him coming forth, as 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 a uh, a result of his courage in coming forth and telling the truth. Well, I can certainly say that William White Crow was a controversial whistleblower because he was a career army officer who was coming forward verifying my time travel account and the Mars accounts of eight other whistleblowers besides himself. So basically he was one of nine, nine Mars whistleblowers who have now come forward wow. from the, from, from the jump room. Nine from, people. No, well, no, actually there's more than that, but those are just the, there are nine, there are nine whistleblower accounts that affirm the existence of the, uh, the Mars jump room program. There are several other space claimants whose experiences seem to implicate them on Mars, but I don't, for various reasons, I don't include them in the sort of canon of those who I can say I'm certain were part of the jump uh -huh. program for one reason or the other, um, either because of their testimony or because I worked with them. Um, but I don't think we can discount the possibility that William Paris was assassinated because he was a career army officer of some distinction who was coming forward with the most controversial evidence. Okay, so when they say, well, nobody else has come forward, it's not true. He was my instructor, he was time traveling himself, and we crossed paths on Mars. Okay, I also brought forward Mark DePrimo. Mark grew up in my neighborhood. We were not in the same grade. He was four grades ahead of me. But we went to the same elementary school. We skated on the same pond when it froze every winter. We played hockey together on that pond, and we went to the same church. We went to the same Sunday school program at the same church. Mark came forward um, to testify on Truth Frequency Radio with Chris and Cherie Geo several years ago mm -hmm. that he places himself with me and four other boys in the Bataan Memorial Building in Santa Fe, New Mexico, where we were off in a corner of a hallway there, examining the Mercury space capsule of Alan Shepard. And he knows he didn't get there through plane, train, or automobile, or hitchhiking. In other words, Mark could not remember teleporting, but he remembered running through that building 
with five other boys, one of whom was me. And our interactions while we went up to the this very tiny space capsule, the, the Mercury space capsules were tiny. There was also a heat shield on it that we touched. It had holes in it. Mark remembered how somebody made a comment about maybe we shouldn't be touching it. Maybe it's radioactive. So I said, Mark, did you ever travel to Santa Fe at that age by plane, by train, by bus, by automobile, by hitchhiking, by walking, by riding a bicycle? No. Well, but you were there, right? Yes. And so, so Mark publicly testified that he was in Santa Fe with me and several other boys from our school at a time when we were supposed to be at school in New Jersey. Here we are in a hallway of a public building in the state capitol complex, the New Mexico state capitol complex in Santa Fe, New Mexico. What were we doing there? We were there because we had teleported there. And we encountered that space capsule, as did an employee of the state government there. When I, during my second of three major fact-finding trips, I spoke to a woman named Kathleen who reminded me of the presence of that space capsule in the hallway. Well, Mark corroborated that memory. He says, yes, I remember I could take you today right to that building and where, where it was in the building. It was out in the hallway on public display. Okay. There was also an individual who approached. uh, Let me just get this thing about Mark. That's what he remembered. You remembered running around with him and he was an older kid. You, you remember it. uh, And, uh, he doesn't remember how he got there, but he remembers being there. Do I have you right? Right. In other words, I remembered the fact that we, it was just another teleportation from Curtis Wright, which I was doing regularly. But Mark uh-huh. was not teleporting regularly. He must have just been uh-huh. groomed for that one jump. But he remembered running through the state capitol complex and through that building. We were kind of almost like in this primal, as, as an anthropologist, I think you could explain this, but as primates, as young male primates who just teleported across country, we were kind of roaming the countryside in kind of like this almost out of control gallop. Maybe that's a primate attack, I don't know. But we were actually uh-huh. slipping, the floor had been, had been polished, the, the floor had been cleaned recently. The, 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 the marble floor of those hallways had been scrubbed recently. So we were actually slipping and sliding inside the building. But we were kind of, you know, six young males from New Jersey who had teleported there. And we were just sort of running across the grounds there. And we ran into that building and through the building. And we stopped when we encountered the Mercury space capsule that Alan Shepard took into space. So Mark couldn't link back and remember the teleporting, but he remembered that romp and he remembered being in Santa Fe and he remembered encount- encountering the space capsule. And he was comparing that memory against memories he had of going to the Smithsonian Institution in Washington, D.C., and he realized it was not the same period of his life that he went to the Smithsonian, and he realized it was Santa Fe. So he he had basically a non-ordinary memory of encountering one of the Mercury space capsules in a public building in Santa Fe, New Mexico, when he was supposed to be going to school in New Jersey. Right. So, so that was corroborative of my time travel claim and, that, and yeah. the claims. And I, I remember that episode. It was, I think, in the summer of 1972. So um, then I was contacted by a young actor named Ethan Tudor, somebody with substantial professional credits as an actor. 
in television and motion pictures. And he, he, he gave me testimony that some of his credits in the IMDB database, that's the leading professional database for actors. That's the international movie database, I, I believe. Mm-hmm. Uh, were contrived to conceal classified work he had done for the government. That some, that he that he has many credits to his to his name, but that some of them in his IMD da- database listing were contrived because he knows he was doing classified things for the government rather than TV or, or movie shoots per se. Uh-huh. So I said, "Well, tell me tell me what you remember doing." And he said, "I was teleporting, just like you've been describing in your radio interviews." And I said, "Between where?" And he said, I don't know why, but it was mostly between Pasadena, California, and Langley, Virginia. And I said to him, Ethan, do you realize the significance of what you're telling me? And he said, no. I said, Pasadena, California is where Parsons is. Langley, Virginia is where the CIA is located. And my father developed teleportation in a program that had reporting requirements to the CIA and was the principal technical liaison between Parsons and the CIA on the very thing you're describing. I said, did you you know that? And he goes, no, I haven't heard enough of your interviews to learn that. I said, yes, my dad was the point man between Parsons and the CIA. And I said, when were you doing this? And he said, in the 1980s. And he was about 10 years younger than me. He was born in the 70s. So it looks like he was another child that they brought into the teleportation activities, but he was able to link up Pasadena and Langley, which was the old Parsons mm-hmm. CIA connection. So there's mm-hmm. another example of somebody that I, I didn't work with. He wasn't from the old neighborhood in New Jersey, so to speak. He was, in fact, a Californian. But a good decade after I began teleporting, he had teleportation experiences linking literally the cities where the principal mm-hmm. defense contractor involved and the principal U.S. defense agency involved or intelligence agency involved are located. Mm-hmm. So the second form of evidence that I developed to prove my claims was I developed the public testimony of other teleportees. I mean, if you're going to mm-hmm. be, be accused of being a liar or crazy saying that somebody robbed a bank, if you can bring forward other people in your community who are in the bank who can who testify and say under oath, but who testify and say, I was in the bank and I also saw that man over at the defense table robbing the bank. That's dispositive of your claims. That's dispositive of the prosecution's case against the defendant. Mm -hmm. People go Mm -hmm. to jail in our country every day because of evidence like that. So the second form of evidence that I developed to prove my claims, to prove Project Pegasus, were the independent claims of other teleportees. Uh Even when I reached out to the kids in my immediate group at my grammar school in New Jersey, there were about five or six that I found. All of them acknowledged the presence of the Montauk chair in the art lab where we had our specialized schooling. The Montauk chair is a time travel device. It's basically a magnetic transducer that so amplifies human psychic performance that it it boosts the human mind forward in time and you pre-experience a moment in your own subjective future. Okay, so when I found the immediate kids I was trained with in New Jersey, 
every one of them remembered the presence of a chair that we would sit in and uh, visit our future. Oh, this, you got You got to hear that music. We got to. We got to come back. I want to hear more about the uh, Montauk chair. Uh, we have a five-minute break now. We'll be back in five. will give you those truths when you're mad as hell and not going to take it anymore from that memorable scene in network you'll know just what to do we will draw you in and become your news addiction at event horizons join us monday through friday from 10 a.m to noon eastern time at freedomslips.com at revolution radio our world team members are Dennis Fetcho, John Ilias, David Dunger, Hila Cass, MD, Melanie Richton, Jim Mars, Paula Harris, John Trallo, Maria Payan, Christopher Husser, DODDS, Jonathan Orchard, and me, your anchor, Dr. Robin Falco. If uh, you decide not to volunteer, it will not be held against you in any way. Sounds dangerous. It is. Very dangerous. Count me in. That's right here. Revolution Radio. Freedomslips.com. Where information never sleeps. Is your data safe? Do you have the necessary information to assist you in confidently living through just about any survival situation? Is survival and gardening, off-grid living, medical knowledge, or even natural or man-made EMPs on your list of personal concerns? Do you have your documents and your personal information in a safe place in your hands where you know where it is? Well, check out our preloaded EMP-proof thumb drive. Over 3 gigs of survival documents and how-tos, plus the USDA offline food preservation website, and much, much more, including a surprise bonus we just can't tell you about here. With plenty of room left over to store your most important documents. Imagine if a mega virus or a computer failure took out your bank, or all the banks for that matter. Are your banking records safe in your hands so when they get things fixed and repaired, you can say, hey, look, this is what I had. You have it. I want it back. Is your personal data safe? Family records? Addresses? phone numbers we'll squeeze on over to freedomslips.com yes that's www.freedomslips.com click the banner on the homepage for the emp proof bullet drive to get the full scoop of everything that we offer so folks keep your data safe for your peace of mind revolution radio freedomslips.com you don't need to expect us we're already here
A visiting Syrian diplomat reported today that their population is evolving rapidly and advancing into a fifth dimensional consciousness. They are seeking peace with all cosmic cultures, which may mean that the Earth will be asked to join the prestigious Galactic Federation of Light Alliances. Please join Debbie West and Michael Hathaway on Lost Knowledge, Saturdays, 3 p.m. Eastern Standard Time in Studio A. For the latest breaking news on the Star Visitor's peaceful contact and the ongoing project of cleansing the Earth. This is the people's war. It is our war. We are the fighters. Fight it then. Fight it with all that is in us. And may God defend the right. Warning, warning. Stop us! They're gonna kill us all! See how the trouble you've started? Be they the freedomslips.com the number one listener supported talk radio station throwing ourselves upon the gears of the machine revolution radio where information never sleeps you called down the thunder well now you've got it you tell them i'm coming and hell's coming with me you hear hell's coming with me revolution The opinions expressed on this radio station, its programs, and its website by the hosts, guests, and call-in listeners or chatters are solely the opinions of the original source who expressed them. They do not necessarily represent the opinions of Revolution Radio and FreedomSlips.com, its staff, or affiliates. You're listening to Revolution Radio, FreedomSlips.com, 100% listener-supported radio, and now we return you to your host. Aloha and welcome back to the Sacred Matrix on Revolution Radio 
at revolution.radio. And I am your host, Janet Care Lesson, with my co-host, Dr. Sasha Alex Lesson, and our producer, the incredible Thomas Becker. And we have today our special guest, Andrew DeVashago. We love Andrew. He comes on about once a year. We want to have him on more frequently. And before we get back to our show, I'd like to remind everybody to please go over to that donation button on revolution.radio and make your donation. We rely on your proceeds to keep our station on air. And we really do appreciate anything you can spare, even like two, three, four, five dollars, a cup of coffee at Starbucks would really help. But 25, 35, 100, whatever you can spare would really help us. Um, Ahmad, I don't know if you could see the stats. How are we yep. doing right now? Yes, ma'am. We got 1922. We need 2600. So we're really not doing too bad. Uh, we really want to push the archives if we could. Uh, $6 a month. And we upload about 36 hours worth of shows in a 24-hour period. You'd have to be a time traveler to listen to them all. <laughs> <laughs> that's true but you can listen to, to my shows and the bad shows um we both have shows uh, uh thomas what shows do you have uh sunday from 11 to 3 i have a call and call and talk show called uh a mad look at reality and then monday nights at 10 p.m uh eastern standard time is open canvas and there's no telling what i'll do there great <laughs> We can never tell about you. And then Tuesday, we have Dr. Liz and I have Stargate to the Cosmos, and we have Kevin Estrella. And on Saturdays, I work with uh, Teresa J. Morris on Cosmos Connection. And that's from, what is it, 6 to 8 Eastern on Saturday. And uh, Tuesday's show is 10 to 12 midnight Eastern. Boy, all the three different times really confuses me. Sometimes I get so messed up <laughs> what time I'm supposed to be on the show. But we handle it. I'm going to hand back the mic to Dr. Lesson. He's doing an incredible job. We um, have our computer in the shop, so we're, we're down to kind of one computer, so I'm going to let him continue this interview. He's doing an awesome job. Go ahead, honey. <laughs> the, the, the awesome job is, is that I, I've been writing all these uh, so uh, things that you write for your, your website, which gets the uh, search engine optimizations, and so I looked at oh, everything Andy said, and I wrote in my mind a little three-sentence thing that was the conclusion now that it's all flowing out we're looking at what exactly you built all the conclusion on and we were looking at witnesses and all you've done uh, uh, with witnesses and uh, that's as far as we got bef uh, before the bell rang and it was time to you're right in the middle of saying something what was that well I found three of the boys uh, actually, no, it was three of the girls and two of the boys who were immediately trained with me, David and Kevin. And I, I don't want to give their last names because I don't have their, their approval to reveal their identities. And then I found Lisa, Sharon, and Marianne. So I found five of my K through five elementary school classmates who I remembered being in the program. And all five placed the Montauk chair in the art lab where our secret schooling took place. Now, the Montauk chair is a time travel device. It is the reverse engineered um, technology from the pilot seat that was used to pilot an extraterrestrial craft psychically. It's a, essentially a psychic amplifier. 
It's a magnetic transducer that boosts human psychic performance so that the, that the person sitting in the chair pre-experiences moments in their own subjective future. When I asked the program administrators how it was working, because we were visiting our futures, but the chair was staying in the classroom, uh, the young man knocking down the device after we had used it explained that they didn't know whether everything that happens to us during our life is in our brain at birth, and the magnetic transduction of the device was triggering that stored information and causing it to manifest before it was supposed to, or whether our future life experiences are in time waves out in the environment. But that's what it was primarily doing. Now, Preston Nichols and Peter Moon wrote a series of books about Project Montauk, which followed Project Pegasus and was focused primarily on the Montauk chair. So for those who have said, well, he he hasn't brought forward any other participants, nonsense. I I established that five, the first five I reached out to who I found who had been in my immediate social group in the program in my elementary school in New Jersey established that the Montauk chair was in our classroom. You see, you see what I'm, I I, I meant by the bias against the rememberer. As long as we maintain this bias against the rememberer, we're going to be discounting and and arguing long past certain cases have been proved. There's two previous cases. Well, actually, there's a number of cases in the paranormal or parahistory that I think have been proved. I think, based on my own research and, and the research of my friends, I think that just the, just the information brought forward by my friend Tina Foster establishes that Paul McCartney died in 1966 and was replaced. I think the 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 master work the, the 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 magnum opus that my late friend Dave McGowan did with the Laurel Canyon scene established that the folk rock scene focusing on Laurel Canyon as described in his book Weird Scenes Inside the Canyon was essentially a US government operation to infiltrate the counterculture or even create the counterculture um i think that um if we also are honest the 80-plus Roswell crash witnesses pretty much establish that the Roswell incident occurred. So I, I put my own development of the evidence regarding Project Pegasus on the same tier of validation as those previous cases of, of establishing the true history of the 1960s and 70s, well, in the case of Roswell, the 40s. But my, my point is that if we just honestly examine the data that I brought forward, my own investigation of my experiences into Pegasus creates as much substantial evidence as has been developed around by those 80 plus Roswell crash witnesses. Yeah. Um, so, so, okay. Then, then, then I looked at the, 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 the really dramatic experience of particular children in the program with me. And there was the famous incident involving the boy who lost his feet. I shared that in my first appearance with George Norrie on Coast to Coast AM on November 11th of 09. And it's been hanging out in the public domain since then. Well, we have identified who that boy is with enough specificity to endanger the validity of my claims by stating who it was. The boy who lost his feet was 
a boy who lived four houses down the street from me named Kevin J. McPherson. He was born on April 28th of 1961. Kevin attended kindergarten and first grade with, with my, myself and my contemporaries and then was held back a grade. So a lot of his training for Pegasus was not with me because he was delayed a year. But Kevin was the boy writhing in pain after sliding out of the fountain, having had his feet sheared off in that famous incident, which took place, we now know, at the Leah Harvey Junior High School site in Santa Fe, New Mexico, when it was being redeveloped into the county courthouse complex in Santa Fe. When I found Mark DePrimo, the older child who had, I had gone to school and nonetheless gone to school and in church with and played afternoon hockey with in the winter and so forth, Mark remembered that Kevin had lost his feet. And I remembered one of my brothers confronting me at the dinner table that looks like your friend Kevin lost his feet playing too close to the railroad tracks. I also remembered an incident in which <clears throat> I was standing in one part of the school playground and a little girl came up to me and whispered in my ear, look, look at Kevin, he's got fake feet. And I looked across the front yard of the school, the front playground area of the school, and Kevin was bounding around on his prosthetic feet, I guess a kind of a rubber grommet on the bottom of the feet. So that, you know, I wasn't just alleging, well, that, you know, mayhem occurred to one of my peers in the program. We've identified who was, who was injured. I spoke with Kevin and at a, at a time when we did not discuss the loss of his feet, but Kevin had, of, of the five kids in the program in my immediate group that I found, Kevin remembered teleporting. But then I could not, I, I was unable to engage him in any conversation after that and also contacted two of his brothers. I'm off, Janet. Janet, help me. Okay. I'll get back this time. Uh, we got... We did. Please. Back. I'll try and get him back. Thank you. Oh, we lost Andy. Yeah. Keep talking, honey. Oh, oh, okay. I, I, uh, so I'm still on, but Andy isn't. Is that what happened? No, he's back. I'm, I'm oh, back. Okay, we're right. all back. Okay, right, right. So, so, so for those who say, you know, I wasn't developing the evidence that I developed publicly, in fact, <laughs> you know, kind of like, oh, well, he made these claims, like this dramatic claim of the boy losing his feet, but then didn't didn't follow up. I did follow up. We've identified who the boy was. Now, when Kevin Kevin comes forward, hopefully we can we can secure his cooperation in revealing that he has prosthetic feet, if in fact it's yeah. the Kevin that 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 was in the program. So, so just on the level of like the social environment, you know, the social hierarchy or, 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 you know, network that I had contact with during those years in the program, I've done a lot to bring forward participants. I've brought forward the testimony of some of the adults, 
some independent adult witnesses and fellow teleportees both in and out of the program that I was in. And then the testimony as to the Montauk chair of a number of the children that I was trained with. Okay, so that that, that leaves the technology. Uh, Can I just ask a question uh, before we go to technology about witnesses? Because I found that with uh, some things that I've worked with, if you get a bunch of people that have partial experiences uh, together and they start talking, and I I remember this occurred at the uh, Mars conference when... uh, White Crow uh, was uh, talking, and uh, the other uh, people who could study the rock formations uh, were focusing on the same thing. When you put these different minds together, you were able to recall more and understand more, and everything started making sense to everybody more. And so I'm just wondering, have you done anything with getting groups of witnesses together, and does this facilitate the process even more? Yes. In fact, we were staging group Skype conferences. For example, there were group conferences about Mars between myself, William Stillings, and Bernard Mendez, or just between myself and William Stillings with our friend Ken Sendo listening in as an observer. And those Mm -hmm. allowed William Stillings and Bernard Mendez and I to get around our memory blocks and remember more than we would have individually. So I think that if you're talking about the blocking of memory, for yeah. example, with the um, with the American version of the Soviet Lida machine, which blocks memory, the only way to re- remove a memory permanently is to perform brain surgery, because again, everything is stored in the engrams. Um, mm-hmm. But th- they had the term the electronic dissolution of memory or EDM. But in fact, they were not dissolving memories with that device. They were blocking the memory. They were associating yeah. unpleasant sound effects and sensations with the recovery of memory, with learning. So they were trying to get us to unlearn what we had experienced, but the memories are still there. So uh-huh. yes, the, the, by group conferences, that's why conferences matter. That's why I think we should promote conferences. And everybody says, well, it, you know, it hastens global warming and so forth. We can all do this online. I think it's good to get in the same room with people. And that also allows people to come forward as witnesses. Because for example, when I did the first free your mind conference, um, in Philadelphia in 2011, under the auspices of Michael Austin Melton and Michael Anthony Falsetta, somebody who had been a U.S. airman at Fort Dix in New Jersey, remembered an episode in 1972 where I was in the lobby of the administration building in Fort Dix and I was yelling because nobody at the base would communicate with me. So I was having kind of an outburst. I kind of reached the end of my toleration of periods of where we would be ostracized socially in some strange way because we were in the program. And this individual approached me and said, I saw you in the hallway at Fort Dix yelling, why won't anybody talk to me? And it was because we all were told that you were some, you were gifted kids in some far out special access program and we shouldn't have any verbal interaction with you. So we were intentionally ignoring you. 
So by, by holding meetings, by holding conferences, that also allows witnesses from the general public to come forward. Uh, I have that man's name buried somewhere in my notes. I'm not even sure I'm ever going to be able to recover uh, his name. It was John and then an Italian name like Bello or Bellini or something like that. But this man came forward and said, yeah, I was, I was an airman there, and I remember you as this fifth grader yelling in the lobby of the administration building there. Okay, so so yes, that that's definitely a way to get around the memory blocks of individuals, is to put a group of experiencers from the same program or the same set of experiences in the same room, in the same conversation, and that tends to hasten uh, learning and the bringing forward of blocked memory. Okay, then the other the other question, and it's wonderful, I understand that now. The other question I have is about. Uh, the adult you who could go back in the memories of the child you and notice things that you didn't understand or, or only partially understood or as an adult looking back on the experiences, does, is that an expansion or did you already have the whole thing? Uh, exactly. No, it was, clearly, as it was clearly an expansion because, for example, my dad had an old flame in New Mexico named Connie Chavez. And he had explained truthfully that he met Connie in 1953-54 when he went to New Mexico for Curtis Wright to flight test the ramjet engine at the White Sands Missile Proving Grounds. And they had both described to me when I was on the project how when they met at the San Gregorio de Abo mission site, which is halfway between Albuquerque and White Sands, um, they actually began kissing shortly after meeting as strangers, which is certainly... <laughs> an unusual social outcome and um, just upon meeting and then got involved for a number of years there. When I asked my dad, when I was on the project with the innocence of, you know, an eight year old, 10 year old dad, why didn't you marry Connie? He said she decided to marry her high school boyfriend, uh, Vern Lacero. And, uh, I didn't get a chance to pop the question, and so that was that. Well, I went back and I investigated the marriage license online of Vern, Vernon Lucero and Marion Constantita Chavez, which was uh, Connie's Spanish name at birth, uh -huh. and they, in fact, got married in 1949. So what I had learned was my dad's cover story. In fact, he got involved with a married woman when he got involved with Connie. He was single at the time. But when he met Connie in 53, 54, she had been married for four years. So that's another aspect of learning that distorts our view of reality. We are lied to or we don't get the facts straight to begin with, and that's what we learn. So in that instance, I had the understanding that my dad met this beautiful Spanish-American lady and fell in love and and was crestfallen after having a relationship with her that he, she decided to marry somebody else. In fact, he had the, 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 the obstacle to his union with Connie was she was already married. At least if we're to believe, wow. if we're to believe the 1949 marriage license that she had, which seems to be dispositive. Cause I also had the name of her husband. And in fact, when I went to investigate where Connie worked in Albuquerque, which was the, the, the La Hacienda and the La Placida restaurants in Old Town, I walked out and started talking about Connie and my memories of her to this old man sitting on a park bench. 
And then I looked over at the man I was talking to, and it was Vern Lucero, her her oh former gosh. husband. So there were there are all kinds mm-hmm. of strange synchronicities like that when I went in search of the truth of my experiences. But but yes, I can say that as an adult, I was able to clarify what was really going on that I had that I couldn't understand or that I had been actively deceived about as a child. And that was one of them. Fantastic. Yeah, yeah. Thank you. I understand. My, I mean, yes. my, dad's, my, my dad's heartbreak, my dad's heart, broken heart regarding Connie was that she was devoutly Catholic and already married when they met. And she was also deeply embedded in the culture of Old Town Albuquerque. So were she to divorce Vern and marry my father, she probably would have been excommunicated by the church. There would have been a falling out with her standing in Old Town and so forth. So they were stuck. So my ma- my dad basically misdescribed the nature of their relationship when they met. Sure. Um, so, I mean, they're all deceased now, so I think I can talk about that with sure. uh, openly. Sure. And uh, sure. J- just show that my understanding of, had been created by by what I was told, but it didn't really correspond exactly to reality at the time. Um, great, great. <laughs> right. Okay, that's great for witnesses. Okay, and so on to the next one. What other type of evidence you want to do? The documents or the photos or well, I'd, what would you know, like to do? I'd, I'd like I'd like to go into I'd like to go into proofs involving the technologies that I could not have faked. Technology. Okay. There were yeah, there were two technology. There were two technical facts that I brought forward in my testimony. The first was. I described when talking about the chronovisors. Now, a chronovisor is an electro-optical device that that creates a hologram that's so dense that it has a lensing effect by which a past or future event is brought into the laboratory. So if inside the laboratory you stand outside the hologram, you can use it as a looking glass technology. You can look into it and see for example, a past event occurring or a future event occurring. But what they found is when the hologram was brought in around the time traveler, in other words, when a child stood on the stage of the device and it was tuned in around us, Uh we subjectively experienced going to that past location or future location. Uh uh And I, I I stated truthfully that when I asked my father, how are you, generating these holograms by which we're traveling to the past because that's a, that's initially what we were doing for example in summer of 1971 i was in new mexico uh and i was being sent to ford's theater repeatedly to see who shot oh. abraham lincoln i was sent seven or eight times i think and my, my dad responded we're, we're putting an em signal we're driving an electromagnetic charge through an eight-sided bismuth crystal. Now, that's just a technical fact I put out there in the course of my narrative, and I didn't really elaborate very much. There's nothing more that I knew. I just was trans- I was just sharing the information my father gave about how they were generating the hologram. Well, somebody Isn't wrote it? me a, 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 a... Huh? Oh, I was just getting that word bismuth. Crystal. Right, it was an eight-sided bismuth crystal, element 83. So I, I received an email from, or actually it was a Facebook posting, from a British researcher named Wynne Keach. 
And he said, Andy, you're not going to believe this, but I found a 1967 patent, 1967, and it was right before you said your experiences began because you described how you first teleported to New Mexico with your late father in, in winter of 1968, the beginning of 1968. And I said, indeed, 1967 was the year that my dad first took me to some of the project locations, for example, in the summer after kindergarten, kind of on acclimation trips to some of the project locations mm-hmm. in New Jersey. Mm-hmm. So it's perfect timing. He said, well, look at this 1967 patent I found by Asaki, the famous Japanese-born solid-state physicist at IBM. It references an eight-sided bismuth crystal. And I said, uh-huh. well, that's interesting. And he said, but this is even more interesting. Look at whose patent he cites as the first work in the prior work section of the patent. Your father's 1962 patent with Neil Williams involving bismuth crystals. They had created a way to create a hall plate effect to, to basically put an electromagnetic signal through a piece of metal in a way where there would be no white noise, no Johnson noise, no signal to, to ground noise. Mm-hmm. Um, and had used bismuth crystals in that application. So in relating what my father had stated about how they developed the hologram, I was able to link it to two U.S. patents as granted. Now, I guess it's conceivable that I could have backsolved from that information, but I don't claim such cleverness. I mean, because this person gave me a Saki's patent. I didn't have the resources to do a patent search. (coughs) I had recovered a copy of my father's 1962 patent involving eight involving bismuth crystals, but not eight sided bismuth crystals. And I hadn't performed a patent search when, when, when Keach wrote me and said, well, I mean, this is for the most part corroborative documentary evidence because here's yeah. a later researcher citing your dad's work with bismuth crystals and creating another kind of technical application with an eight sided bismuth crystal. That's right in the ballpark of what you were talking about. And I said, indeed, I I agree. Another claim of that nature, of a technical nature, is I had described how my father and Dr. Sterling Colgate of the New Mexico Institute of Science and Technology had sent me in spring of 1972 from a time lab in East Hanover, New Jersey, where the Menem Corporation is, which used to be called Colgate Palmolive, which was... Uh-huh. Sterling Colgate was descended from that family, the Colgate family, the family that funded Colgate University, for example. Uh-huh. And uh, uh, I had described how Sterling had developed a, a time travel technology called plasma confinement. Well, in my second of three major fact-finding trips in September of 2004, I went to New Mexico I met with Joy Thompson, the research librarian for the New Mexico uh, Institute of Science and Technology, also known as New Mexico Tech, where Sterling Colgate had been president and dean of physics. And I asked for this. I asked Joy Thompson for the Sterling Colgate clip file. I went into the newspaper clips, and the first newspaper clip I found 
was stamped with like a February 5th, 1972 date. It was, it was a 1972 newspaper clipping announcing that Dr. Sterling Colgate, Dean of Physics and President of New Mexico Tech, was going to be giving a public lecture on his advances in plasma confinement. Now, I'm sorry, I grew up in New, I grew up in New Jersey and California, and I practiced law for 20 years in Washington State. I have never studied physics, except for whatever specialized schooling I received in Pegasus. I've never completed a course of high school or college physics. Okay? Mm-hmm. I would have had to have known about the obscure technical work of this obscure physicist in New Mexico to have somehow fabricated that connection. And I didn't. I found proof of my claims in his clip file at his university. That's documentary yeah, that's evidence. A test that can't of, be that's a hypothesis test. That's a valid test of a hypothesis. Yes. Right? According to prevailing yeah. scientific standards, I framed a hypothesis and and, and I, I tested reality and reality Yes. generated confirming data that there was such a scientist. He was affiliated with the same university that I mentioned, and he developed the same technical process that I had previously credited him with in the mm-hmm. time travel context. Now, here's, here's the difficulty with the inadequate way that we're evaluating non-ordinary claims. The $64,000 question is, was the plasma confinement that Sterling Colgate was researching in New Mexico and lecturing about that night the same plasma confinement that I remembered him using to send me to Gettysburg? Because let me explore one possibility that we are simp- in, in our in our unwillingness to implement objectified open-mindedness. This this is really one of my major concerns about our country and our planetary civilization. That was really has really been raised by my investigation. The really responsible thing would have been what I tried to arrange. I actually traveled in 2008 to meet with Sterling Colgate, among other research tasks, on that third of the three major fact-finding trips to New Mexico. And I was sitting at his kitchen table in Los Alamos, and he would not come home to meet with me. His very nice wife, had let me in. I'm sitting at the kitchen table. She had served me some, some coffee and some cookies, and I'm sitting there at his kitchen table waiting for Sterling to come home and talk to me about his work in plasma confinement because the responsible way of approaching the subject would have been, Sterling, I remember you sending me to Gettysburg in 1863 from 1972 via an emergent time travel technology called plasma confinement. I've now found evidence of your work in plasma confinement in your library, indeed in your clip file in your library, the library of your university. Okay. What really needed to then be investigated was, was the plasma confinement that Sterling Colgate was doing at that time, did that have some spooky action at a distance that led to my time travel experiences? or alternatively, the memories of my time travel experiences. In other words, what was never explored between me and Sterling Colgate because of government secrecy and scientific hubris and 
a cultural pattern of denying the claims of the rememberer. And that goes yeah. to our discussion at the outset of the interview. I went and I was sitting at Sterling's table and I was trying to say, do you realize that if you can say here to me that you never worked on time travel, something you were doing in plasma confinement at that time was creating conditions in my childhood where you were sending me to Gettysburg via plasma confinement? Do you realize the implications of that? Now we know that writing something down tends to create a greater possibility that it will occur. The famous case, of course, is where Jim Carrey, the comedian, um, wrote a $2 million check to himself when he was a, an unknown. And then I think he was paid $20 million for his second movie. Um, <laughs> but there are some people who, who practice a form of magic based on an attempt to ordain things by writing them down or creating symbols or numbers or or sigils related to the magical, the desired magical outcome. Okay. What I'm saying is the investigation of my paranormal experiences, the paranormal experiences that I know I experienced, um, the non-ordinary, I should say, could have been created by experiments in quantum physics that were then underway in some of our most sophisticated nuclear labs, the Los Alamos National Labs, Sandia, the New Mexico Institute of Science and Technology, and some of the kind of smaller engineering companies that my father worked for, the Edison Labs, Curtis Wright, Aeronautical Company, etc. And I went back as an American citizen and I said, look, I met you in the late 60s and early 70s. In fact, in 1972, from this building that's still there, in East Hanover, New Jersey, you sent me to Gettysburg in 1863 to see Lincoln give the Gettysburg Address via a methodology that you had pioneered called plasma confinement. I want to now compare notes with you and find, find out whether the work that you were then doing in plasma confinement was what it was. What was it? And did it relate to time travel? If it didn't relate to time travel, we have to examine the question, which is even really more onerous, that whatever you were doing in plasma confinement was creating conditions in East Hanover, New Jersey, where I was having the experience of being sent to Gettysburg by you via plasma confinement. In other words, because, yes. we, because we don't value the rememberer, because we suppress and accuse the rememberer of being a liar or crazy or delusional, we're not investigating offsets in quantum physics mm -hmm. that in all likelihood have occurred, yeah. at least in some cases. Now, we have, you know, for example, these great mysteries. Yeah, yeah. Let me just go back to, to this, this fellow, because Stanton Frieden actually showed us the contract that people that sign certain information access documents. It says, you must deny that such a program exists you must lie if you don't lie we can do all kinds of terrible things like take away your pension I, you know something like that could be operating with this dude well that is true we know about janep 146e which um when you're doing military work that provides for 10 years of imprisonment in leavenworth military prison a ten thousand dollar fine a loss of all of your pension but absence of evidence does, can, does not connote evidence of absence. So in fact, notwithstanding the existence of those kind of penalties, uh, 
that doesn't go to the dispositive question of whether whatever Sterling Colgate was doing at that time in plasma confinement was having a spooky action at a distance effect and changing my world, yeah. changing the world in a way that he was not apprehending. Now, I'm sure that his yeah. secrecy involved his later work at the Los Alamos National Labs. I think Sterling was either the discoverer or did major work on quasars. He later was appointed at Landel, so that brings in probably work on nuclear weapon systems and that sort of things, mm -hmm. and that mm -hmm. sort of thing, in which his secrecy would have been secured. But the dispositive question of whether his work in plasma confinement in New Mexico during those years created essentially what might have even been an alternate, a, a branch reality where you, where, if you will, where the Sterling mm -hmm. Colgate I knew was the time travel scientist who sent me to Gettysburg. You see, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. we don't know. I mean, the, you know, the Bible, the Bible forbids sorcery. Well, what's sorcery? Sorcery is just putting a bunch of chemicals in a pot and drinking it. Right. We, you don't know when you drink an hallucinogen, really what the nature of your trip's going to be. I'm not saying that I didn't time travel under the auspices of Sterling Colgate. The problem is I did, and I remembered it. I remembered everything about that jump to Gettysburg. In fact, I, was, I went back to Gettysburg in 2013, 150 years after I first walked into Gettysburg as a hapless 10-year-old time traveler. And as we'll see in the next segment here, with what time we have left, I was able to verify multiple aspects of my trip to Gettysburg. So I'm not saying yeah, you got to tell us, tell us about it. We got to hear about Gettysburg in the time we right, have right, right. Okay. So, 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 my, so my point is that my point is that I sought out the researchers and I I proved that the technical references I had made were real. I found the patent citing my father's patent with the eight-sided bismuth crystal. I found the reference linking New Mexico Tech, Sterling Colgate, and plasma confinement in 1972. Okay, so I think I made my point that basically, because yeah. of this culture of denial, we're not investigating reality deeply enough to know whether there have been literally branch realities created by these experiments in quantum physics. Okay, now, why do I, what, 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 do I, what did I find out about Gettysburg? Well, I went to Gettysburg in 2013. As you may recall, I originally walked into Gettysburg from the farmland north of Gettysburg. I now found that Gettysburg College is now located on that farmland. But I walked down Washington Street and into town, and a lot of the original buildings on those three major avenues that go east-west in Gettysburg are still there, as are Baltimore Street and Washington Street, just as they were in 1863. So what was I able to prove about Gettysburg that only a time traveler could have proved? Well, for one thing, I stated that when John Burns, John Lawrence Burns, took me into a millinery shop and outfitted me with a warm jacket, which was a Union parka, a Union winter jacket, and civilian street shoes that were very large, way, way too large for a 10-year-old boy. That, that those shops were on the north side of Upper Emmitsburg Pike, also known as Ehrenberg Road. Well, I walked Ehrenberg Road, spoke with all the shopkeepers, and they said, yes, this, this, this establishment was here the day Lincoln was here. I walked across the street and found that the Irish Tavern across the street 
bore a, a plaque stating that it had been built in 1829. I found that the Dobbins house at the corner of Washington and Ehrenberg was constructed in 1776. So I found that that street had establishments on it that Mr. Burns could have taken me into to outfit me with the, the shoes and the hat and the jacket that he, that he, that was his purpose for bringing me into the millinery shop. I also found that the reason the Gettysburg historians were discounting my account is because they were relying on a map published in the 1872 Adams County, Pennsylvania Atlas. So this was a situation where book learned historians who were relying on a map that was made nine years after I walked into Gettysburg as a, as a time traveler from 1972, basically on November 19th of 1863, that they couldn't put that establishment there because they were relying on a faulty map published nine years later in a county almanac. I then investigated the people who helped me. I investigated John Lawrence Burns. I described his appearance, how he was hob- he was limping on what looked like a pretty severe leg wound, how he had a key to the shop, how he was walking through the downtown area in the early morning at about 8.30 when I, when I walked into town so cold that my teeth were chattering uncontrollably. And I found the following. I, and I described how he kindly helped me. He was worried that I was going to, quote, unquote, catch my grip by being out in the cold morning air without, a sh- without shoes, without a jacket. I found that he had a lifelong pattern of volunteerism. He had volunteered himself into the War of 1812 as a, as an adolescent and into the Battle of Gettysburg as a 69-year-old and been wounded in the hip after joining the Irish Brigade and being surrendered to the sidelines of the battlefield by a Confederate regiment flying a flag of surrender to protect him because they thought he was a a hapless elderly civilian who had gotten caught in the crossfire. Wow. Which I think shows some of the the honor of the Confederate troops or the troops of of that day. So he was a volunteer by nature. He was so humanitarian that he had adopted the daughter of a woman in town who was mentally and physically fit but refused to work. She was surviving on donations in the town almshouse and refused to to take a job. He adopted her daughter to care for the daughter. I found that he was listed in 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 the Gettysburg Town Almanac, the town book, as cobbler and town constable. And I found that it was his habit to tour the downtown area in the early morning because he was town policeman. He was constable. Now, I described how he had a key to the millinery shop, the men's accessory shop, and he took me to the back row of shoes where the worst shoes were, and they were used men's street shoes. Well, John Burns is listed in the Gettysburg Records as the town cobbler. A cobbler isn't a shoemaker. He's a shoe repairer. In fact, the owner of that shop, a man named David Kendallhart, was identified in the town records as attorney, town council president, and town shoemaker. He was his oh. employer. He was the man who made new shoes. The, the spanking new shiny black shoes I saw in the front of the shop when John Burns gave me that ancient pair of 14, size 14 men's street shoes 
that I can be seen in the Josephine Cobb image of Lincoln at Gettysburg. I had described not just John Burns having access to that shop, and of course, as cobbler, he was working out of that shop. He was taking old shoes and repairing them and, and then providing them back to the customers and being paid for his repair work. Okay. I also had described how I was having a moment of time dilation and acceleration, so I couldn't hear any of the conversation when a woman came into the shop, apparently the proprietress of the shop, and had an argument with him because I could see her consternation. But their voices were either too fast or too slow to make out because I was having this strange time dilation and, and acceleration effect, I guess from the plasma confinement. Well, I researched David Kendallhart and his wife, Eliza Ann Bowen, and I found something that was deeply touching. I found that they were the directors of the Gettysburg, Pennsylvania um, station for the Underground Railroad. So the conversation that must have been taking place between Mrs. Kendallhart, Eliza Ann Bowen, David Kendallhart also being known as David Bowen, he had two surnames for some reason, um, and, and John Burns, when John Burns had already equipped me with the jacket and shoes, I had originally thought she was saying things like, you know, John, we're, we're selling those jackets and shoes. We, you can't just give them away to any wayfaring um, orphan who wanders through town. What she actually must have been saying is, John, we're collecting those jackets and shoes for our fugitive slaves. So you can't just be giving them away. We need them to equip the slaves, even to equip them to join the battle. Because remember, as the great Richie Havens, one of my favorite singers, wrote a wrote or he sang a, a brilliant rendition of a Civil War song called "Give Us a Flag." Freed African Americans became Union soldiers. They were known as the Colored Volunteers. In fact, some of them served under Gould, and there's a bas relief of that regiment on the Mall in Washington D.C. So. In collecting and cleaning up those Union jackets and stacking them in a pile on the floor in the storehouse behind their shop floor, David Kendallhart and Eliza Ann Bowen were creating military equipment so that fugitive slaves could become Union soldiers. Right, right in the shop Beautiful. in the very town where the Gettysburg battle and right up the street from where the Gettysburg address was delivered. Okay, so I identified that about, and was deeply moved by the, by the fact that oh, that, that yeah, probably what, what what Mrs. Yeah, they were heroes who. So she was probably saying, John, you know, let's let's hold on to these jackets. We need them for the slaves that are stopping here, if not to get them further north to freedom, to get them into the battle under Commander Gould and and and, and other officers who were creating regiments of black soldiers. Very moving thing for me to discover there in historical Gettysburg. Um, I then walked down to where I had followed um, Mr. Burns, back down to Washington Street, and then across Evergreen Cemetery, and I'm able to identify exactly where Lincoln gave the Gettysburg Address, which is actually disputed by the, the historians of the Gettysburg Battle and the Gettysburg Address, the basically the you know the leading historians of Gettysburg. Lincoln gave the Gettysburg Address from the northern side of a dais that was placed on the northern perimeter of the Evergreen Cemetery, which was the existing civilian cemetery. 
the grounds that you see in the famous picture of me at uh, the so-called Josephine Cobb image of Lincoln at Gettysburg that revealed me as a child time traveler from the future, those are the grounds of the new federal cemetery that was the land north of Evergreen Cemetery. And the dais where Lincoln was standing in the back of that picture with the the, the arch to the cemetery is over on the east. It's over on the left side of that picture as you look south. So the picture is looking south at the dais across the hallowed grounds, which Lincoln was consecrating, which would become the, the final resting place of the mortal remains of all but six of the soldiers who'd been interred in the um, civilian cemetery immediately after the battle. Lincoln gave his Gettysburg address on November 19th of 1863. Four and, a half, four and a half months after the Battle of Gettysburg, which was July 1st, 2nd, and 3rd. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I can place that dais. I could take an historian there today and show him exactly where it was. It was the northern perimeter of the Evergreen Cemetery. Mm-hmm. So those were just some of the things I was able to tie up by doing my investigation right there in historical Gettysburg. I was able to, to create the context in which Mr. Burns helped me as town constable and, and town cobbler, I was able to explain the and provide further detail about his the kind of the confrontation he had with Mrs. Kendallhart about giving away the jacket and hat and shoes to me. I was able to prove that that building was there and it was a men's shop. So that the very building I said that he provided the key to we were able to verify his leg injury because he was shot in the hip during the Battle of Gettysburg. That's why I said he hobbled up onto the wooden sidewalk limping mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and really contextualized the whole trip to Gettysburg. And again, I'm not Ray Bradbury. I don't, I'm not some genius of historical fiction. I could not have put those details together. And some of them are only answerable by going into the records at Gettysburg. I spent a whole day there. Um, reconnoitering just the documents in the libraries there. And then I walked the street, you know, I, I walked my path in 1863. I, I basically parked my car in Gettysburg College and walked down Washington Street to uh, through historical Gettysburg and then on to the cemetery. Yeah, I think so, you've, you've nailed down uh, what we, we could cover. Right? What we didn't cover is the, the, that anomaly uh, of your... Uh, of, the photograph and, and the other thing I can't stop without knowing who shot Lincoln <laughs> well I never saw who shot Lincoln when they were sending me in 1971 to 1865 I did see the Lincolns come into the theater and Mr. Lincoln was very emaciated almost skeletonous and walking awkwardly forward bending at the knees so I think his Marfan syndrome was far advanced Lincoln may have had cancer uh, I also saw Lincoln sitting in his balcony seat, and he looked like a skeleton in the suit. So I think the claims that we now believe that Lincoln had cancer at the time of his death is probably true. He was only 56. I mean, I'm 56, and I certainly don't look emaciated like that. He was very mm-hmm. emaciated. Um, but in terms of the anomaly, the anomalous nature of the photograph that was taken, it's just we could do a whole show on that. But basically, yeah. one of the most remarkable things is I had been given a letter to Navy Secretary Gideon Wells of Lincoln's cabinet to offer me aid and assistance in the field if I became disabled or I was arrested or became ill or wounded or whatever. 
And I was taken back to 1972 before having to use that document. But in 2011, uh, Janet Lesson, the direct lineal descendant of your, your wife, <laughs> the direct lineal descendant of Gideon Wells, offered me aid and assistance, and you did, Sasha, on the island of Maui when I needed lodging when I was on a speaking tour of the Hawaiian Islands. So I ended up getting aid and assistance from the family of Gideon Wells, what, 149 <laughs> years later, something like that. <laughs> Thank you so much. You got it. Aloha. Aloha. Mahalo. You're listening to Revolution Radio at freedomslips.com. We'll be right back after this message. Thank you for listening to Revolution Radio at freedomslips.com. Any commercial advertising you may hear in this program is of the sole discretion and benefit of the host of whose program you are listening to. Revolution Radio does not endorse any commercial products, nor does it accept monetary compensation for on-air advertising of commercial products, nor will it ever. We are and shall remain 100% listener supported. Any product advertising on this program are considered used at higher risk, and Revolution Radio shall not be held liable for any claims or damages received from any product advertised within this program. Revolution Radio, where information never sleeps. Moscow's freeze. That's your cerebral cortex looking for an answer it doesn't have. See? Even your brain knows you're screwed. The blood is filling with adrenaline right now. Whether you know it or not, the heart's beating fast. It's getting a little harder to breathe. The neurobiological system is telling it to run. But your knees are too weak to move. Fear is not real. The only place that fear can exist is in our thoughts of the future. It is a product of our imagination, causing us to fear things that do not at present and may not ever exist. That is mere insanity. Do not misunderstand me. Danger is very real, but fear is a choice. We are all telling ourselves a story. You're listening to Revolution Radio at freedomslips.com. 100% listener-supported radio. Reporting the danger. Unafraid. Right here, where information never sleeps. Revolution. Revolution. Radio. Radio. Take a look around, kid. What do you see? Homes being foreclosed. People working two, three jobs just to put food on the table and still drowning in debt. Don't get me wrong. This country is founded on great ideals and principles. They've all been ruined by the banks. Open your eyes to the banks that are robbing you. You know who my favorite president was? Who? Oh. Alice Jefferson. Because he saw all of this coming and tried to stop it. 
He fought the banks. JFK too, and they killed him for it. The banking institution is more dangerous than an army, he said. <laughs>